0: Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian.
1: I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people welcome to our dietitian connection podcast my name is jane winter from dietitian connection and i'm an accredited practicing dietitian the podcast episode today is supported by nestle health science and today we will be discussing one approach to weight management But the information is not, and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to individual circumstances. The podcast is for information only, and we advise exercising judgment before deciding to use any of the information. And obviously professional advice should be obtained before taking action. So very low energy diets or VLEDs are used in certain specific situations for weight loss, and that's often prior to bariatric surgery. But do they have a role for patients undergoing non-bariatric surgeries to help improve the safety and the surgery success? Today, we're going to take a look at the use of VLEDs in this situation, how to implement them, the assessment of patient suitability, um, protocols to use, and working as part of the multidisciplinary team. And my guest today is Sally Griffin, who is currently completing her PhD in this area. Sally is an accredited practicing dietitian and current PhD candidate at the Queensland University of Technology. She's got over 10 years clinical experience and is currently the senior complex obesity dietitian at Logan Hospital in Queensland, where she designed and implemented the successful pre-operative very low calorie diet clinic for non-bariatric surgery patients, which has now been implemented across multiple hospitals and has also attracted international attention Sally's research focus is on perioperative care for patients with complex obesity, and she's really passionate about the integral role that dietitians can play in this specialist area. She's received multiple awards for her research and is considered a leading expert in Australia on the use of VLCDs to optimize patients with obesity for elective non-bariatric surgery. So welcome to the podcast today, Sally. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for having me. So we're always interested to know like, how our guests have come to um, develop an interest in their particular research or practice area. Can you tell me a bit about how you've come to this topic?
2: Yeah, so I guess um, I started out like most dietitians, I guess, in a clinical role. I just sort of went for any job that, that was available. Um, I started up in Townsville at Townsville Hospital, had a great time up there um, and did a variety of kind of things. I worked on wards, I did a a lot of um, work work in the oncology uh, cancer center there, and um, was there for about almost four years, and then um, made the made the move to Brisbane in I think 2016, and sort of I guess most of the time I've spent there since then has been in the outpatient space, um, but originally it was predominantly gastroenterology, so I was seeing a lot of. Um, Yeah, IBD, IBS um, sort of specialist kind of clinic in that way. Um, And as part of that outpatient clinic, we had a little bit of funding included in that, which was to see patients from surgeon referrals. So, yeah, we used to get a few more um, referrals for preoperative weight loss. And our um, Logan Hospital doesn't have a bariatric surgeon or surgery, so it was all for non-bariatric surgery. And so that's kind of where my interest started. Um it wasn't anything structured or a model of care at that point, we were just getting um, an increasing amount of referrals in. And so over the over time I sort of um, evaluated that that cohort of patients and sort of looked at who did well and who didn't, and looked at the literature and sort of yeah, worked on um a new kind of model of care that would help people get to surgery. Or so sorry, their...
1: the, the, those referrals were for weight management or for a whole range of just getting ready for surgery type conditions? Uh, for, for weight
2: management, yeah. So it was predominantly patients who the surgeon wasn't happy to operate on unless they lost a bit of weight. So they were generally quite high-risk patients, so patients with complex kind of comorbidities you know type 2 diabetes they might have sleep apnea um plus you know their their bmi was you know quite high so all of those things combined made them a high risk surgical candidate and so the surgeon wanted to modify those risks a bit by getting getting their weight down and getting their comorbidities more well managed before surgery um because elective surgery is not an urgent surgery it can it have a bit of time to prepare and and optimize the patient for the surgery that they're going to have um so yeah that's where our referrals kind of started and yeah over the last uh 5 or 6 years it's developed quite a lot and now um it's yeah developed into yeah my my passion project obviously and and doing a phd now so i've i've got uh probably 6 months or a little bit longer um depending on how i go to finish my phd so i've done a fair bit of looking into this area and some research, which has um, been really interesting and really rewarding as well.
1: So what's your you know, the basis of your PhD sort of question? What's...
2: Yeah, um, so it's sort of just looking at whether providing this intervention to patients prior to non-bariatric surgery, what impact it has in terms of surgical outcomes. I guess that's the big question because surgeons refer their patients for that reason, really. They want the patient to be more successful in terms of less risk of complications arising from surgery, Um, but they also want the surgery to be less difficult for them to complete technically. Um, But in terms of the PhD, what I've sort of been seeing is that the literature around this is so scarce that I had to start quite small with this question. Um and ideally I would love to prove, and I think it probably will be proven um, you know, in the next years, but I, I would love to prove that this improves surgical outcomes definitively. But we we do need to know at the moment as well is whether this whether this intervention is acceptable to do as well and whether it's safe to do, because It's just not known yet. We don't have a lot of information about, um, you know, how long should we do the diet for? What kind of weight loss will, you know, improve outcomes? So there's lots of questions around that. So my PhD kind of started looking at I wanted to get to the surgical outcome part, but in the process I kind of found all these other questions that needed to be answered before we got there. So um, it's been a really kind of zigzaggy journey, but, but got a lot of interesting information out of it as well.
1: So that will be your postdoc, Sally. Is the, <laughs> getting to the surgical outcomes. Okay, so if we if we take a, a step back to what the intervention actually is, and yep. for people that might not work in this area, perhaps you can just explain. And I've already used two different terms to talk about <laughs> the same thing: VLED and B L C D. So, what that is, and what the the current evidence that you did find um, for yeah. use.
2: Yeah. So the reason I I tend to use VLCD, um, only because I use that with my patients in practice. So I I find it difficult to interchange, but I know they're exactly the same thing, just a manner of speaking. Um, but I guess what it, what it is in a nutshell is technically it should be, uh, 800 calories a day or less. That's the very, um, you know, definitive term of what a VLCD or VLED is. Uh, but in amongst that, there needs to be, I guess, what also makes it a BLCD is it's usually a very structured kind of protocol or diet, um, and it generally uses meal replacement products to, you know, um, provide the bulk of nutrients to that patient while they're undergoing a restrictive diet so they're not missing out on, you know, getting enough protein or micronutrients. So that's really important that uh, you do that, I guess, you can do a food based VLCD, but it's much trickier to get uh, everything in that you need. Um, and so, yeah, it's generally quite structured. Um, generally, the rule of thumb is for a, um, a true VLCD. Generally, it's a 12 week, 12 week ish uh, intervention where after the 12 weeks, probably should be more liberal with the amount of calories and things like that. But under medical supervision, you can change that time frame a little bit depending on the patient um, themselves. Um and yeah, generally in a BLCD you do need to have, you know, enough fibre and enough fluid as well to keep um keep the bowels moving but also flush out any ketones because most people or I think probably 50% or a little bit more would get into ketosis with a true VLCD. Um so it's 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 generally works by, you know, the appetite is suppressed with the ketosis as well, which helps them keep on track. So that makes a, a, a quite a big difference to some people. Um, and, yeah, it needs a dietitian involved because what I've found at least is um, patients who are referred to us uh, uh, can be complex. They are high BMI. So it's generally our average BMI is about 41. So it's not your average person on the street. We need to make sure we're getting enough protein in. So we need a dietitian to actually calculate how much protein and monitor them on the diet so that they're, getting enough of that and not putting themselves at risk prior to surgery, which is really important as well.
1: And when you talked about the need for fibre and fluid, um, for example, um, do they have um, additional vegetables or salad or those sorts of foods?
2: Yeah, so generally you want them to have at least sort of two cups of – uh, this low starch vegetables as well um, as the products, and then um, at least two to three waters of liters of water, um, generally as well. So yeah, that's that's really important. And often people uh, miss that out. They sort of come back to a review appointment, and you check in with them, and they're not having enough of either of those things. So it's really important to, to check in as well.
1: Yeah. Um, how long do you ideally get them on? Um, the VLED program for prior to surgery. You mentioned it's elective, so there yeah. might be waiting time, so you might have 12 weeks, but I guess I'll, sometimes you don't have 12 weeks.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it really depends on the type of surgery as well. So some are more urgent than others, and um, but generally we can give 12 weeks to people. It really depends on the referral as well and what the surgeon wants. Um, to get the maximal amount of weight loss, if it's really for reducing actual weight around the, especially around the abdominal organs and things like that, um, 12 weeks is generally what you'd need to get um, a clinically significant reduction in weight. And that generally means more than 5% body weight. And with our clinic, we generally, because we know we don't want to set people up to fail either, we don't want to give them a weight loss target that's so wild that they can't get there 12 weeks either so we generally limit it to about 10% body weight loss you know we say to the surgeons this is what you can expect so if they need more weight loss than that perhaps refer them a bit later down the line if they've if they've managed to lose some weight Um, so and then other types of surgeries might need just a really short-term blcd so um, In my PhD and in the systematic literature review that I did as the first kind of port of call, I found that the literature is really scarce around whether um, surgical outcomes are actually impacted in terms of surgeries like gynecology surgeries or orthopaedic surgeries, but the type of surgery that we can kind of confirm that it does make an impact is surgeries that either involve the liver or are, in the area of the liver that require the surgeon to manipulate the liver to get to the organ. So the short-term BLCD can reduce the liver volume um, by up to 27%, I think, in the first four weeks. So we know that if if the patient's, you know, um, just got a bit of a fatty liver or the surgeon knows that their, their liver's going to be really large and, and difficult to manipulate, they might just ask us to do uh, two weeks pre-op VLCD, just to shrink the liver down. So we get those as well. Um, And obviously if a patient is more of a cut one kind of surgery, um, they they don't come through often, but if they are and they only have four weeks, then we just give them four weeks to try and get as much off uh, weight-wise as we can prior to surgery.
1: Right. So actually um, if it's just the liver size reduction a shorter period of time might actually be okay as opposed to the ones where you're looking at yeah weight reduction total
2: yeah and and it's the literature shows that all of pretty much most of the majority of of liver reduction happens in the first two weeks so you you don't really get a a continuation of liver shrinkage after that it's it's mostly happens then so it's actually easier for the patient too you can imagine doing two Mm. weeks
1: 12 weeks yes um, easy. you get
2: the same effect it's it's choosing which is more appropriate yeah. for that
1: patient. Yeah. So what are, what are the types of surgeries that you're seeing, the non-bariatric types of surgeries that you're seeing patients for? So
2: I guess it would depend on people's uh, hospital and what, they, what surgeries they provide there. If you, have a, if you have a hospital that provides all sorts of um, surgeries, you probably get referrals from all of them. But we um, at Logan, it's a small hospital. It's not, it's not a tertiary hospital. Um, our main referrer is gynecology which surprises a lot of people, um, and the literature is, is zero. <laughs> I can tell you it's, it's very, very scarce. Um, so it's exciting that we're seeing such good outcomes with them. The surgeons love it. The gynecology surgeons absolutely love it. So most of our referrals come from gynecology for things like hysterectomy is probably the most common one. Um, yeah, and I guess the the thing that I've found anecdotally over the years is the women who come to us, um, from gynecology tend to do really well because they're really motivated because they have symptoms that are limiting their quality of life and they need the surgery. So they have pain or they have, you know, excessive bleeding and they've got anemia, they're really fatigued. So they need to get this surgery done as quickly as possible. Um, so they're they're really an interesting group. Um, aside from that, we have, probably the next group is probably general surgery. So that's predominantly um, laparoscopic cholecystectomies and hernia repairs. Uh, So that's the next kind of group. And then the next one will probably be upper GI um, surgery. So we don't don't do oncology at Logan. So we only have um, basically hiatus hernia repairs. Um, And again, that's due to the liver being in the way of that surgery. So the surgeon refers a lot of of his patients to us for that um, either short term, the LCD or a longer term to get more more weight off. Um, and then we get a few from orthopaedics and a few sparingly from ENT and endocrine as well. So it's kind of a smattering, but, yeah, it depends on the hospital. I think if you had, um, you know, a really big general surgery cohort, you'd get more from there. It just yep. depends. But yeah.
1: And can you explain what exactly a model of care approach is? What do you mm. mean by that?
2: Yeah, so... We um, we ad- adapted ours and, and kind of redesigned it based on what was working and what didn't, so we made a lot of mistakes along the way because it wasn't being done in a model of care way that I knew of. It was sort of, you know, surgeons would refer and you might put them on VLCD, but then there's no structured way of well, how do they, you know, then what happens for the surgery plan? And, um, you know, how much weight loss are we asking for patients to lose? So it's sort of, it was quite unstructured. So the way it is at the moment is that we have a really, um, really streamlined approach. So basically, we have an eligibility criteria that we stick to quite strictly. And that really works well. So eligibility criteria Mm -hmm. means that we can only get referrals from surgeons. Um, We don't We don't take referrals from um, outside of that surgeon's assessment because that's the definitive thing that will allow someone to go to surgery or not. So it has to be from the surgeon or sometimes it comes from the anaesthetist who's also seen the patient and has, you know, discussed the patient with the surgeon. Um, The patient has to be uh, within that weight loss target, as I said, Um, so up to 10% body weight loss to to go to surgery is acceptable to the surgeon and they've agreed to that um, so that's really important and then um, obviously the patient sometimes this falls on the dietitian at the first appointment but we do ask the surgeons they're pretty good at it at the moment is to just briefly outline to the patient what would be involved um, you know you can just say it's a really basically like shakes and it's it's quite restrictive and it's a bit difficult but it's, the dietitian will help you are you okay with that and so Um, getting agreement from the patient to then refer to us. And so I guess the model of care is that we see them every two weeks. It's quite an intensive sort of program. Um, We're checking in with them. We're doing bloods. We have a bit of um, extended scope of practice to order and um, action any bloods that need to be done for safety reasons. Um, And then we do have a bit of a, a flow chart, which is that if someone gets to 12 weeks, And they haven't really met their target, or they don't, you know, we're not really sure if they're going to get to their target. It will then be the surgeon's decision whether that patient goes to surgery or not. Um, So that kind of works well because then it's not just the patient trying and trying and trying. We have to sort of call it at some point and get the patient reassessed um and often what happens is and in one of my studies we found that 70% of these patients got through to surgery and even the ones that didn't you know quite reach the target the surgeons were still happy to go ahead because the patient had you know they might have only lost a few kilos perhaps but in in the course of the program they'd improved their blood sugar control and they'd started exercising right. and so they've done a few things for their health and they've done their best and so but at that point, we sort of advocate for the patient and say, look, I think they're as optimised as they're going to be. Um, so the benefits outweigh the, the cons then of going ahead.
1: Yeah, and they are in a better condition than yeah, yeah, when they had started. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. going to ask, actually, That you said that the surgeon um, sort of briefly says that this is what's in store, the VLED program. Mm-hmm. So when the patients uh, present to you, they already know that that's they're signing up for. Or... Yeah, most of them. <laughs> there's, always, there's always the odd one that's,
2: that's sort of like, well, what am I doing here? Um, that was what it was like at the start, to right. be frank. So that was also a really uh, difficult thing to contend with when you, you've got a patient mm. who turns up and, and they're really shocked or they're, they're not really sure what they're doing there. So I think that's a really important ingredient of a successful model of care is that the surgeons who are referring are understanding of what's involved and we we had to do a lot of education and sessions with the surgeons ongoing about this, the, the new ones that come in, we have to sort of explain, you know, please tell your patients what's involved and just ask for their permission to refer. Um, So you get consent. And so, yeah, it doesn't have to be, a, um, as I said, a, a long explanation. That's just a quick, you've got this clinic. This is what they do there. This is the plan. Do you agree? Can I refer you? And, you know, then they refer if they do. Yeah.
1: And I imagine for the, from the patient's perspective, it's a much more secure feeling knowing that everyone involved in the surgery is advocating the same thing, surgeon, dietitian, yeah. anyone else they see knows about it. Um, so what? how do they respond to it, like the patients generally? Are they pretty positive? Yeah. Do they see it as just part and parcel of the surgery basically as a package sort of deal <laughs> or are they reluctant? Um, I think... It's probably
2: a testament to the 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 length of time we've had it in place. I think, as time's gone on on, it's gone gotten lots better. um as I said at the start, we had patients turning up who weren't keen and didn't understand. Mm. but once we got this kind of in motion and it was well understood before they turned up we I would say quite rarely now I have the patient who really doesn't want to do it um I think now what happens is that patient is not referred to start with so there's probably a lot of patients that that aren't suitable that aren't being referred um but by and large at the moment we I see a really positive um response and that's been you know shown in research already is that you know if you have someone who's being well supported with a really structured way of doing something and they understand what's involved and they know that everyone in their care is you know, on the same page and they're not going to get told something different down the track. That's really important. So that's that model which is that, you know, we tell them at the start what to expect and then they know what to expect as things go on. So, yeah, I think that helps a lot.
1: Yeah. And just on a side note, just you mentioned that you have uh, in extended scope of practice the ability to order bloods. What sort of, for people listening that might be interested in doing this, what sort of blood tests do you ask for?
2: Yeah, so it's all um, it's in the the clinical sort of protocols that are available. But basically, um, most patients are generally it's advisable to get a blood test done at the start of of doing a VLCD, and that would include um, what we call Chem Twenty. I don't know if other people call that, but it includes you know your renal function, oh. your function, um, electrolytes, and for some women in the gynecology space, especially we've we've started. Um, more so, testing their iron um, stores and iron um, panel because we find that often they're they're quite anemic or they're um, needing a an infusion, which helps helps things along greatly. Um, but beside that, just in general, it would be just your sort of um, yeah your general panel to to do a
1: baseline. Yeah, so it's generally following what's in the clinical protocols that yeah. often accompany the BLCDs. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And what about how do you find Compliance with the VLEDs with your with your clients. Yeah, I think
2: um, we did a the most recent study I've done is was an RCT, a randomised control trial, um, and we tested adherence uh, to the diet in that one. Um, so some studies will use ketones, you know, urinary ketones as a as a measure of compliance, um, which which has sh- shown different things. But I guess we find that. Um, some peop- some patients don't get into ketosis, but they still lose weight <laughs> and they're still being, you know, adherent to it. So we wanted to show that, um, you know, according to what the patient's telling us, are they adherent? So I I had to actually develop a tool for this because there wasn't one in existence um, to, to sort of assess someone's adherence to a VLCD. Um, but we found a really good overall adherence to the diet itself. Um, I think we ended up being... 88% adherence out of 100% obviously. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's because I think the the trick is that you see people every two weeks so you yes. can adjust and you can, you know, check in and say, oh, you're not having enough of the products, you need to have a third one, you know, and then the next time yeah. they are in the third one. So if you left it longer than two weeks, I think you'd find adherence would be less and that's, that's also been shown in the literature as well, that they need the support and the feedback um, and the other thing that helps adherence, I think, is um, it's it's rapid weight loss. So they do see results quite quickly. And for that reason, they think, oh, well, it's working. I'm going to keep doing this, yes. um, yeah. which is different to sort of other approaches, I guess. And that's why BLCD sometimes works much, much better. Yeah.
1: I think yeah. you're right. And from my experience with VLCDs, it's exactly those two things. You talk about the fact that you see results quickly, but also support is crucial because if you're wavering or if patients are not quite sure or they're feeling like it's not working, to have someone to run those questions by is really, really crucial. Um, so what other sort of is there any other monitoring that you do just when they're going through the V L E D?
2: Yeah, I guess we there's a lot of things we check in on and I think um it's one of those things, I guess. As you do something for so long, you you forget how you actually do yes. it. In nature, but I was trying to think of it. I thought um, usually, I mean, because once patient patients get to you know their second, fourth, sixth week of seeing you, they kind of get the drill and they kind of just yes. <laughs> tell you all about their last two weeks, but. Um, you generally want to want to monitor a few things. So we know that there are some side effects with um, you know the, the actual strict VLCD. So there's things like the bowels um, might change. Mm-hmm. Um, you might get some side effects of ketosis, especially in the first um, week or two, and that can be things like a bit of lightheadedness, headaches, um, things like that. So you just want to monitor for that and make sure that number one they're, they are aware they're aware to expect that because that's another thing is you don't want people to be surprised and think something's wrong where it's just a side effect of the first few days getting your body into the ketosis so yeah sort of um checking in with those symptoms and managing them we can manage basically all the symptoms from ketosis pretty well um with bowels and that sort of thing the most common thing i see is constipation um and that's just due to you know eating a less bulk of food but also sometimes they're not getting enough fluid uh or fiber in so sometimes it's just adjusting that more vegetables or adding a fiber supplement supplement in um and yeah bloods as well i guess if you're worried about someone or you need to check in with blood's midway through is also <laughs> is also important. Uh especially people who have, you know, existing underlying um disease states that you want to check in on and make sure that they're being safe with what what you're providing. Um yeah, and I think the other thing is of course weight loss. So the easiest way to assess if something is working is just to assess the the weight and how the weight's changing. So we generally say, and I'd say tell tell patients up front, if we're getting, you know, about a kilo weight loss per week, then that's generally what we would expect and hope for. And so if we start seeing that, you know, week to week to week, it's not doing that, then we might need to change something or really assess what's happening um, and adjust our plan accordingly.
1: Yeah. And are there... Patients who are sort of a definite um, ruled out of BLEDs that are not eligible because of risks or something else? Yeah,
2: I think there are ones that you just wouldn't, um, it wouldn't be appropriate for. Um, There are, like in in the clinical protocols, there are, you know, um, contraindications. So people that really shouldn't be doing a strict um, 800-calorie low-carbohydrate diet, um, and they do say that, you know, you have to be cautious of people over the age of 65 um, and for for us though that that's something we've had to look into because, of course, with surgery in an ageing population, you get so many more patients that are over 65 that um, still require some weight loss and would benefit f- from it for surgery. So we just use a, a modified version of a VLCD for them. We don't do the 800-calorie calorie diet. We might still use some meal replacements, but we do a more low-calorie diet and do the same structured protocol, but it's just that that difference in in what they're able to have. Um, So age is one thing. The other thing is, um, and people often ask me, is about cancer and surgeries for cancer. So as I said at Logan Hospital, we don't have an oncology service, but we do have Colorectal surgeons there who do um, colorectal tumor resections, so for cancer. Um, so, people might, it, it's a really interesting area that needs much more expo- exploration because the problem is is getting larger. We have people who are in bigger bodies having surgery for cancer that would actually benefit from having a smaller amount of fat around their mid. Um, so it's a really tricky thing because we're you know as dietitians, we're taught, well, you can't have someone losing weight that's got cancer, it's really you know. Um, so with us we've the odd person that gets referred for a colorectal tumour, we do um, a pretty specific eligibility criteria check for them to accept them. so we we have to discuss that patient with the surgeon for one. Um, and the second thing is they can't have any metastatic disease, so we don't want people with you know hypermetabolic, Um, issues that are just going to create, create problems with weight loss. And they, it needs to be a localized tumor that's not causing any nutrition impact symptoms. They haven't lost weight already. They're not malnourished. We do a full screen of them, uh, malnutrition screen at the start. So we're really, really careful. And the other thing is what we do is throughout their, BLCD journey is we're checking in more often. <laughs> it sounds insane, but we, I like to call them each week because I feel like there's very narrow, narrow, um, yeah, for error, we want to make sure that they're following what we want them to do. So in terms of protein, it's really important that they're getting enough in. Um, and I also monitor for things like fatigue, you know, if they're getting more fatigued, Did they notice, you know, their muscles are getting, you know, those sorts of things tells me that perhaps they're losing lean body mass and not fat. So it's just a very um, more more intensive kind of intervention for them and just to make sure they're safe. But there's a lot of patients we don't see because we just think, no, that's not, it's not evidence-based yet. We just yeah. don't know what's going yeah. to happen. So better not.
1: And what about um, post-operative? Like do you continue to see these patients post-op or what happens with them post-operatively?
2: Yeah, so I guess um, with our service, and, and people probably f- will find this as well, um, we we do have to limit it to a preoperative service because that's what our funding is and yeah. that's how the model works. If we did keep a hold of people, we'd need a whole lot more funding <laughs> to keep mm. everyone in and see a lot more patients. And ideally, in an ideal world, that's what we would do, but in an acute hospital setting, I think it's probably um, not suitable for us to be a long-term weight maintenance kind of clinic. So what we tend to do is during our um, BLCD treatment through the pre-operative program, we'll be touching base about what what our follow-up plan is and what support can we access post-operatively. Um, and we're also giving them some education about general healthy lifestyle yes. changes, lots of things like label reading, just things that they can utilize for long term um, and. It's great because I, when we did um, my first kind of study where I just evaluated patients that had gone through the clinic and surveyed them, um, most of them said that they had learned long-term skills for their health, which a lot of people wouldn't consider really with a VLCD. They kind of think, well, it's a quick, a rapid approach and maybe they don't learn much. But the patients said that they did. So that was that was encouraging. So I kept con- continuing to do that Um in terms of post-operative um, dietetic care with with our patients, obviously the first you know few weeks of post-op is not the time to continue the diet at all. <laughs> we want to make sure they're healing up and they're recovering. So that's part of the education that, that we give as well is to say we can't be continuing this until you're really well and truly over surgery and um, you've completely healed up. And so... After that, they might want to access what's available in, in the area to continue with a dietitian, um, and we encourage strongly encourage that. Um, there are some group programs that we have uh, ability to refer them to just to create that sort of touching base with someone ongoing. Um, we try to do as much as we can. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope that, that we do enough to sort of set them up for something uh, long-term. But I think it comes down to the patient motivation as well to continue it afterwards. Most patients, sub- they do want to continue it. Yeah. Um, by and large, most of them do. So I just, yeah, sort of give them a bit of a scaffold what, what what they can do afterwards, yeah.
1: And I suppose that is the benefit or one of the benefits of seeing them so frequently, preoperatively, is that, as you say, after the first couple of visits, they sort of know the drill when it comes to just reporting in on their use of the b l c d but it gives you time to talk about those other aspects of behaviour modification and, and post-operative. And also, I suppose, if they do want to continue with a VLCD postoperative, they know how to use it appropriately because they've been supervised by you guys for the first 12 weeks. So how many dietitians are there actually in the clinic? Is it just you or is it?
2: Um, it's just a one, um, one FTE or one position, yeah. but my um, job share at the moment, cause I'm doing my PhD. So I've got another, um, dietitian that we, we see patients for. So, yeah. so we sort of see, I think our referral rate somewhere between, uh, sort of between eight and 15 a month we get referred. Yeah. Um, yeah. just really fluctuates, but that because they are seen every two weeks, your clinic fills up really yeah, quickly. Quick, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, just be aware of that if you're wanting to set something up, don't don't just let let everyone. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, I often keep just- tally of how many are in the clinic because sometimes you forget and you're like, oh, I've got like no spots in the next two weeks because everything's booked up. So. Yeah. I have to keep a cup on it sometimes. Yeah,
1: and you you mentioned that uh, obviously surgeons clearly and anaesthetists are integral into this um, multidisciplinary approach. Um, are there other are healthcare professionals who are sort of closely linked into this approach of management?
2: Yeah, I think for us at, at Logan, it's a, quite a bare bones approach. I mean, it's dietitian led, and we just have. Dietitian sort of, um, you know, leading the care and the surgeon is on board, obviously, but but we're sort of making um, over for the 12 weeks. But um, we always encourage patients to, and a lot of our patients are, you know, challenged with mobility and things like that. So we often need them to have an exercise physiologist, help them out with, um, you know, prescribing appropriate exercises and things like that. But unfortunately we don't have a full you know, multidisciplinary clinic, so to speak. Um, other sites do. Um, so other sites are really well set up with that, which is fantastic. So they have, it's more of a, you know, a full complex obesity sort of service. So they might have a an endocrinologist, um, a pharmacist, physio. Um, they might have, you know, group exercise classes, things like that. So that would be my dream. That would be fantastic. Um, but it still works without without all that you still you still can do it. you just need an appropriately qualified dietitian to be leading the care um, and surgeons and and people who are on board um, but you can add in more uh, members of the team if you have access to them and I would encourage people to do that if they do, especially in the the age of pharmacotherapy, how it is now um, a lot of patients are on medications as well and so having a pharmacist and an endocrinologist is really good yeah. for that yeah.
1: And uh, in in sort of summary, I guess what in your uh, perspective and in your opinion, what do you see as the benefits of choosing a BLed or BLCD um, over other sort of methods for weight loss in this cohort of patients?
2: I think the the overarching reason is that it's structured, and the feedback I get from patients is overwhelmingly. That a VLCD, as opposed to some uh, other kind of dietary approaches, which might just be you know, you're just tweaking this or giving them advice about this or you know, changing their type of milk they use or those sorts of things, that's a very different approach because those all those decisions that that patient has to make creates a bit of a burden. A lot of patients um, explain that once they start on the VLCD, all of that choice burden is taken off their shoulders because. They don't have to work out which kind of – they have a very, very um, black and white list of things that they can and and probably shouldn't have on this space. So for me, I I just hear it all the time. They just say, well, this is like so much easier to follow and it's kind of a a reset button for them. And often people have tried so many different things and they've, you know, looked up different diets and they've, you know, got got on meal delivery services or all these sorts of things, but this is very different in that – you know, they still have to choose a few things, but it's it's very few things they have to choose. So that that overarching structure is um, really helpful, I think, for patients. And as I said, the, the rapid weight loss and just the motivation that comes with that is really beneficial um, for success
1: mm. as well. We hear a lot about mental load, don't we, these days? So, like, yeah, there's all yeah. talk about mental load. And I guess this is just another aspect. And if you're also thinking about going in for surgery and, you know, yeah. there's so many other things happening and that they've got a family they're still trying to support. You there's know, yeah. so many things to manage. Um, if one thing can reduce the burden of the mental load is. enormously helpful i'm sure and and finally for dietitians who might be listening who want to give this a go in in their setting what would be your sort of top tips for them or and um where where might they go to get resources to help them
2: yeah so i think the first port of call if you're if you're interested and you or you you know you've gotten some interest from surgeons or anaesthetist or whoever, um, is just tap into that. So just explore that a bit more about who, what kind of surgeries, um, you know, and maybe just getting those people on your side to start with because what I've found over time is that it's it's a lot harder if you're trying to push something if they're not, uh, you know, all the way on board. And often I've found in other sites that have contacted me about trying to set it up is that the surgeons have approached them. And, and have said, well, how can we get this set up? So my first tip would be, yeah, talk to your surgeons. So general surgery tends to be a really easy one to go with first. Um, if you have gynecology, I, I would strongly rec- recommend you approach them as well and maybe just explaining to them, well, this is kind of a model that's worked elsewhere. What would you think about that? Would you refer patients? Um, and from there, I guess the the really top tips which i which i have you know recommended to people who have contacted me is just get your criteria set up and stick to it <laughs> because you will find that if things get a bit lax and you you start sort of accepting people who don't quite meet the criteria or it becomes a way and and, and this is from when i started this was what was happening it can become a way for surgeons to refer their patients to something and then lay their hands off, they're kind of yeah, it can be a, a sort of a, a paper pushing exercise for them. So you don't want that, you want it to be an active model of care and a really structured one. So I just encourage people to be steadfast in in the eligibility criteria and really be um have open communication with your surgeons. Um I think like as dieticians often we only deal with surgeons on the ward or in an inpatient setting. But they're really great, like they've been overwhelmingly supportive and the consultant surgeons are the people you need to to talk to. So it's all about the communication and the team. Um and if you have any interest in setting something up, um I, I do get emails from time to time. I've got a fair few recently. If you did want um any uh resources or advice or just some you know, starting tips or whatever. I'm happy to um, answer those. Um, in Queensland, at least with Queensland Health, we do have a bit of a group I've set up for clinics um, that we meet with every quarter, and we share resources and PD sessions and things. So there's a bit out there. It'll it'll start growing a lot. But um, the other thing is, you can always access um, training uh, for VLCD um, prescription and monitoring um online and yeah there's a few avenues but if you wanted to start to set up a model of care like I've sort of described, I think you need to yeah talk to the surgeons involved first.
1: And yeah. are some of your um are some of your early research um is obviously published now?
2: Yeah, so I've got two publications and I've just submitted one and I'll submit another hopefully today or tomorrow for publication. Um so the first one was just, as I said, a, a kind of a um, it was just a, an efficacy study of the clinic. So basically, looking at did patients lose weight? Was it feasible? Did they turn up to appointments? Was it safe? And did um, surgeons and patients find it helpful? And they did they like it? Um, so all of those were met, <laughs> luckily, and so it was um, you know effective, and so that was published two thousand twenty one. Um, And then my other one that was published was a systematic lit review, as I said, um, about whether it actually impacts on surgical outcomes. So those two are published. The other two, um, one's an RCT and one's a, retrospective observational study, um, they should be out for publication hopefully in the next 6 to
1: 12 months. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> so yeah. keep an eye out for those and we'll put links to the two published ones in the show notes so people can easily access them. So Sally, thank you so much for your time today. That was a really interesting and comprehensive approach um, or, or guidelines about about your setting in Logan Hospital and it's it's really nice to feel that you're doing something so that has such great positive um, outcomes for patients who are facing surgery and particularly in non-bariatric because we've heard a lot about using BLCDs prior to bariatric surgery but not so much in the other areas. So I'm sure everyone um, who's interested in this will will find that really, really helpful. So thank you so much for your time and thank you also to Nestle Health Science for um, supporting our podcast today. Thanks very much.
0: To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.